Brill, morning. You all right? Yeah. yeah. Good. <coughs> yeah, I'm all right, yeah. Yeah. Is this the, is this the drinking water? <laughs> right, okay. I've got a little bit of a sore throat this morning. I was uh, I was managing the church football team yesterday. <laughs> and we lost 6-3. And, uh, and I had a sore throat before that. Anyway, I'll just talk for two minutes about things where, where we're at, just down the road in Partington, uh, bring a little update on that, and then talk about Palm Sunday, because that's, that's what today is, isn't it? Um, but yeah, I really appreciate your, your prayers and your support for the things that are going on uh, in Partington. We've got an Eden team as part of the church now, um, been with us for 18 months, and just doing some really amazing work uh, with the young people of the estate and the community. Um, doing a lot of work in the Fuse uh, building and uh, so doing a youth club on a Tuesday night which uh, I go down and help at sometimes doing some creative arts sessions on a Thursday evening with the young people in partnership with the Message Trust so we've got street dancers and rappers and singers and musicians, drummers coming and giving tuition to the young people doing detached work on a Friday night going out on the streets and just meeting the young people uh, you know, after dark when they're just hanging around on the street corners and, and just sharing the love of God with them. And, uh, yeah, just really value your prayers for, for what's going on there. And if you want to find out anything more about what's going on uh, or how you could support it, just let us know. We're really praying for, for more women to join our Eden team at the moment because we've got five people on the team and four of them are men, which is not sort of the norm in church life, is it, you know, generally? But we've got four really fired-up men of God and, and one fired up woman of God. <laughs> so, if you know any women who are that way inclined, please um, let them know. Anyway, today's Palm Sunday. Uh, it's the Sunday that we remember that triumphal entry, entry that Jesus made into Jerusalem. And as Arthur's already touched on uh, with his prayers, you know, people were, were rejoicing and celebrating on Palm Sunday. But five days later, they're crucifying him. They're crucifying him and they're shouting for his, his crucifixion. You know, what's going on there? How do we do that? Why are people so fickle was the prayer. But today I really want us to, to explore what's going on there, to look at what was going on before and then what's going on after Palm Sunday, what's going on in the build-up to Palm Sunday and what, what then happens from that point on. Because, you know, that's a, that's a bad week, isn't it? You know, in politics that will be considered a bad week. Um, from Hosanna, here is our king, let's bow down and worship to crucify him. So I'm reading from John 12, and, uh, you know, holding all that intention as well, we're acknowledging the sovereignty of God in this, aren't we? You know, that, that there was people involved in the detail, but God had a plan. Jesus knew that death was coming, but so too was resurrection. That's the big picture, but what's going on in the detail? So, John 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. 
He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you'll not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made a plan to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come uh, come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they'd heard that he'd performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So, why the excitement? What's going on before Palm Sunday that leads us to the scene where all the people are lining the streets as Jesus is riding on the back of a donkey and the crowds are cheering and praising and worshipping? You know, as we picture the triumphal entry, you know, maybe think back to the, the Premier League winners going on a victory parade uh, through their local town. You know, it's that sort of scene. You know, sort of leaving East Manchester these days, isn't it? Um, you know, and going down the A57 towards the city centre where the crowds are gathering to celebrate. Or picture Andy Murray, you know, when he, he won Wimbledon. A few years ago, first time ever, and everybody got really excited, didn't they? And people lined the streets to see their hero, to get a glimpse of their hero on their homecoming. It's that sort of scene. The people have heard that Jesus is coming and they're lining the streets and they're celebrating and they're worshipping. So why why the excitement? I want to suggest uh, three brief factors that lead us to the excitement of Palm Sunday. Those are only the first three points. I've got a few more for you after. So they are brief. The first one is the messianic hope of God's people. That is that, you know, the context is the Jewish people are under Roman rule and Roman occupation and they're looking for and expecting and hoping for a saviour. There's a messianic hope. Despite being under various empires for many years, there is this hope that one day God will come and deliver his people. And when you add to that that it's the week before Passover, you have a very excited crowd. Because at Passover, what happens? Well, the Jews remember God's deliverance of his people, of their people, from slavery in Egypt. And how God had led them out of the chains of oppression and into the promised land. And what God had done for his people is what they were looking for God to do again. You know, he has led them out of oppression and into a new life. And, you know, 
God's people remember this. They know their history. They know their heritage. And they're looking for God to do the same again. For God's deliverance. For the Messiah to come. He's done it before and he'll do it again. Anticipation and hope is now the time. You know, is that sort of, is now the time moment. We can sometimes do this ourselves without thinking about it, but about the second coming. You know, maybe we don't talk about it a lot, but maybe you've had those thoughts, or maybe you know people who've had those thoughts, where you're like, well, there's a lot of stuff going on around the world now. Is now the time? You know? Anyway, that's a sidetrack. Um, But one writer gives a brief overview of the context. He talks about the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire, you know, the Jewish people were under all those empires, and it was Rome at this point. And he says, Herod the Great ruled as a puppet for the Roman Empire until AD 4, when the kingdom was split into three uh, and shared between his sons. To cement their control of the land, the Romans placed procurators, governors, who took controversial steps, including taking a census, imposing taxation and seizing part of the temple treasury. At this time, Herod Antipas ruled Galilee. Philip ruled the north, eastern territories. And the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, was procurator. Despite the history of conquest by world powers, the Jews held firm to their faith. That's the context. Whatever we're under... We're God's people. And the Messiah from David's line will come. God has been our deliverer. He will do it again. He will save us. And we're going to look to God to do it. And when you see a marginalized, oppressed people seeing beliefs and traditions they've held dear be dismissed, compromised, marginalized, abused, particularly coming up to the time of Passover when you remember God's deliverance, The people are hoping. The people are praying. The people are looking for God to send the Savior. Is now the time? Secondly, Jesus fits the bill. Jesus fits the bill. Jesus fulfilled or was fulfilling the messianic hope that the people were holding on to. We know from a couple of sources, uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian being one of them, that there were people at the time of Jesus who to some extent were performing the odd miracle here and there. I mean, God does work through people who aren't Jesus, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He works through Jesus, absolutely. But, you know, think Elisha, think Elijah, think the apostles, think the church today. Jesus does work through other people. Uh, God works through other people. And we, you know, we, we read accounts of other people doing the odd thing here and there. But generally, these would have been people who came and went. Or if they were professing to be the one that Israel was waiting for, they would ultimately be found out, back down or flee. Because they weren't the one. And the rabbis at the time taught that the true Messiah, the true Savior, wouldn't just do the odd healing here and there, but would perform four messianic miracles that point us to this person being the true saviour. If you read Isaiah 35, I'll just read a little bit of it for us. It it points us to the miracles that would come when God's deliverance was going to come. This is Isaiah 35, end of verse 3 onwards for a couple of verses. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. 
Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. That's in Isaiah 35. God will come and he'll heal the blind, the deaf, the lame, the dumb. The four messianic miracles, the true marks of the Messiah, the true Messiah, as taught by the rabbis at the time, was the healing of a leper, the casting out of a man, uh, sorry, the casting out of demons or a demon that caused a man to be born both blind and mute, the restoration of sight for a man born blind, And lastly, the raising of someone from the dead after four days. And Jesus sets about his earthly ministry. And he's not just a great teacher, and he's not just a compassionate pastor. But Jesus is fulfilling these signs. He heals a leper. He doesn't just heal one leper, he heals ten lepers. Did he get lucky? No. Because he goes on to set a man free, not just from one demon, uh, but a man who was so demonized that they were called legion. Like a Roman army. He restores the sight of the blind. And word is getting around. Crowds are gathering. Momentum is gathering. Belief is gathering. Is he the one? Is he the one? And then going into the triumphal entry, what comes just before that? Jesus raises Lazarus from, from the dead. He raises him from the dead. And John tells of this going, growing crowd, snowball effect, and the growing momentum. News is traveling at a fast pace. The people want to see Jesus, and they want to see Lazarus. It talks about the chief priest wanting to kill Lazarus. If we get rid of the proof, people won't know Jesus raised a man from the dead. But Lazarus being alive is a bit of a problem, isn't it? It's not a problem for Lazarus. Jesus is fulfilling some of this messianic hope and expectation. Thirdly, the people know their scriptures. The prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When you put all this together, this is what the fuss is about. It's the time of year when God's people remember God's deliverance in the past. They look with hope and expectation for deliverance once more. They need a saviour, looking expectantly for the Messiah who will deliver them. And Jesus is fulfilling those messianic hopes. He's performing the miracles that the people were looking for, culminating in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And then here he comes, riding into Jerusalem, on the back of a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy about the coming king. Here's the one. Here's the one. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The people are getting excited. And with it, all the crowd's preconceptions get put on him. This is what he's going to do. This is how he's going to do it. This is our deliverance. Rome is going to be overthrown. We're going to be free. The Romans are going to be destroyed. 
We'll have our land again. And they put all their preconceptions and expectations onto Jesus and they make God in their own image. There's your Palm Sunday crowd. There's your exuberant worshippers. There's your Hosanna, glory to God. Here's our King. Because there is a lot of salvation expectation, but they've already decided what that's going to look like. They've already decided what that's going to look like. And five days later, they're crying out, crucify him. Free Barabbas. We don't care about this, Jesus. We want Barabbas, the proven guilty murderer, to go free. Kill Jesus. What happened? What happened? Why the turnaround? Why the death? I want to suggest that what happens after the triumphal entry can sometimes happen in our hearts and in our lives. We can get excited. We accept Jesus as saviour. But along with that, we have all our preconceptions and all our misconceptions about what life with Jesus is going to look like. Sometimes it's missold to us. Missold is the wrong word. But you know, we can have this image or idea. If I become a Christian, all my problems are going to go away. Our life is going to be amazing. Our life is going to be amazing, but all your problems aren't going to go away. I'm really sorry to tell you that. If that makes you want to reconsider what you've just put in the offering bag, speak to someone from here. But... But it's true. You know, God will be with you. Jesus will be with you, but he calls you to pick up your cross and follow him. Jesus doesn't do what we expect sometimes, does he? God doesn't do what we expect or hope for or pray for. He's delivering salvation, but it's not on our terms. Sometimes, you know, rather than us being challenged and corrected, rather than seeking the Lord's will, Rather than stopping ourselves, we reject God. We can turn our back on God. Turn our back on his teaching and our plan. We go, you know, I'll follow you up to a point. I'll follow you up to a point, Jesus. But this is my life. You know? But that's not what Jesus taught us, is it? Whoever wants to save their life must lose it. John the Baptist prayed, less of me, more of you, God. You know, God, if you were good, you'd be doing what I want right now. Because I know what I need. Have you ever had that thought? Ever had that prayer? God, if you, if you were really good, if you were really God, this is what I need. Maybe we've, you know, we don't say it out loud because it's not the sort of thing to say in church, is it? But, but it happens. You know, God, you know, I thought this would happen. I thought that would happen. I prayed for this. I prayed for that. Our conclusion being, maybe not, God's not quite as good as we thought. Or maybe God's not quite as God as we thought. Maybe he's not quite as powerful as as we thought. Sometimes we can project that onto God. Because of our preconceptions and our misconceptions and our expectations. And the truth is he's God. He's still God. And we're the ones who need to be changed by his spirit. What happened in the week after Palm Sunday and after that triumphal entry is that Jesus continued with the Father's agenda not the people's agenda. He didn't bow to their desires or their preconceived ideas or expectations of what this salvation was going to look like. He carried on with the Father's plan. If 
Following Jesus is about saying, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your agenda, your plan, your purposes for your people. It's about saying, Lord, change me. I'm not here to change you. To see what happened, you don't need to go there, you don't need to turn there. I'm not going to go into the details. But reading from Mark 11 onwards, um, we see loads of what happened after Palm Sunday. That lead us to the crucifixion. You know, just imagine you're in the crowd, you've waited. Your, your forefathers, your dads, dads, dads have waited years and years and years for the deliverance of your people. And you've got hopes and desires and expectations. And someone comes to you who up to this point has done everything asked of the Messiah. He's fulfilled all the expectations so far. And you think he's going to carry on fulfilling your expectations and wants. But he comes in a different way to how you planned. It's not so much them not delivering, it's us having a wrong expectation. Does that make sense? Jesus redefines salvation. He redefines saviour to what the Jewish people were looking for. So firstly, the Messiah's come to deliver Israel. And what's the first thing he does after the triumphal entry? Fruitless Israel is criticised. That's the, the first thing that happens after us. Jesus curses the fig tree. Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree. He sees no fruit. Just leaves. A fruitless fruit tree. Out of season. And he condemns it. And in at least three of the Old Testament prophets, the fig tree stood as a prophetic picture of Israel before God. In Jeremiah 8, in Hosea 9 and 16, and in Joel 1. You can look those up later. The fig tree stood for Israel before God. And Jesus in his ministry goes about observing the religious people being very religious, but bearing no fruit. He sees a fig tree, Israel, full of leaves, but bearing no fruit. And he condemns it. Their worship had become an empty ritual. Legalism. And Jesus is not having it. The first thing the Messiah does after the triumphant entry is say, all this stuff you're doing, it's rubbish. It's rubbish. The people are singing all the right songs and they're saying all the right things, but it's lip service. The fruit tree is fruitless. Their worship is fruitless. And the deliverer comes not with a pat on the back or a rallying cry about how he's going to take on the Romans but with a challenge to God's people. Is your life bearing fruit for my kingdom? Is your song just a ritual? Are we bearing fruit for God's kingdom? Maybe today God wants to challenge us to, to get out of just going through the motions of, of church and to bear fruit for his kingdom. What's the stuff we do just because we've always done it? Because people told us this is the way it's always been done. Will we do all we can in God's strength to bear fruit for the glory of God? Secondly, Jesus carries on from that place. And the temple system's rebuked. There are people selling in the temple. There's money lenders in the temple. Money changers, memorabilia being sold. The place of worship has become a place of tax. And Jesus comes in 
And he turns the tables over, doesn't he? He turns the chairs over and he drives the people out. Isn't this the Savior? Isn't this the Messiah? I thought he was one of us. I thought he was here for us. You know, can you picture someone coming in here? Not this morning, maybe next Sunday. And, uh, you know, you think, you think they're going to be your, uh, your guest speaker or whatever. And he just comes over and he's chucking over your welcome desk. Chucking over your away day sign up board and going, This is just, what are you doing? What are you doing, Lim? You've missed the point. This is what it's like. This is what Jesus is doing here. The, the temple is, is as it has been for a while. And Jesus comes in and he's going, What are you doing? Any of you here got, got kids? Actually, I know a few of you have because loads of kids left the, uh, the room earlier, right? And I'm assuming they didn't all turn up without a parent or guardian. Um, but any of you got kids that are old enough where you can leave them in charge of the house for a little while? Yeah? And you, you, you sort of, you go out for the day or maybe you go away for the weekend. And that moment where you, where you approach the house again and you're pulling up to the drive and you're... You're internally praying, you know, God, what's the house going to look like? Is it still going to be there? What's, the, you know, and you come in and, the, and there's a house party going on and, and there's paint on the walls, not the paint you chose and there's food on the walls and, you know, your ornaments have been smashed or whatever. It's that sort of moment. You know, Jesus, who is over the house, comes back to the house and he's going, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, maybe we're not selling stuff, but perhaps the deliverer would still come and ask the question, have we, have we taken the presence and grace of God for granted? You know, this was in the temple. This was the place where God's presence was going to dwell. Have we lost our reverence for what, who God is and what he's about? Jesus saw what was happening and chased the fakers and the frauds and the sellers out of the temple. Next, uh, Jesus flat out refuses to play the games that the religious people want to play. They say to him, where is your authority come from? Who gives you permission to say these things and do these things and teach these things? And he just says, I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you. He doesn't have to answer to priests. He doesn't have to answer to anyone. He's the true God. He's the Lord of all the earth. He's God. He doesn't need our permission to be God, does he? Fourthly, and into the rest of Mark 12, ungodly power, authority, and manipulation is challenged by Jesus. Powerful people love power, don't they? They love power. Powerful people hate it when their power is challenged, questioned, criticized. But Jesus does just that. In Mark 12, we see the tax system criticized. We see the Sadducees' beliefs and attitudes criticized uh, when they're trying to trap Jesus in a hypothetical conversation. We see the teachers criticized. Jesus going, you want to watch out for those people who dress like they're really important, but they're just all talk. Those people who are stood on street corners, praying their prayers with their long fancy words. Think they're going to be heard because they use posh long words. No, don't be like that. And when you pray, go to your room and talk to your Father in heaven. 
Those people who look really powerful and important think they're God's gift to humanity. They are not. Jesus is God's gift to humanity. How else does Jesus the deliverer endear himself to the teachers and the powerful? He says, the temple's going to be destroyed. That went down well. By the way, it was. And you see the old widow... See the old widow putting 3p in the offering bag? She is a more generous giver than all of you. Because she's given everything. She's a better worshipper of God. Because she's put in everything she had. And those in power were embarrassed, rebuked, corrected publicly, left with their tails between their legs. The finger was pointing at them. Because they'd neglected to be what God had called them to be. And they neglected to do what God had called them to do. And it was all about power and prestige and titles and importance and dinners and mingling and self-congratulation instead of getting on with being the, the priests that God had called them to be and doing the stuff God had called them to do. What is God calling you to do? What is God calling you to be? And will we, will we do it? Will we get on with doing it? These few days of ministry meant that actually Jesus was not that popular anymore. He was not that popular. The Savior, the Deliverer, had condemned fruitless Israel, had thrown people out of the temple, chucked the tables over, rebuked and challenged the teachers, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the systems. He'd spoken of the coming destruction of the temple. It's not going to go down well with the people of the temple, is it? Perhaps there's a reminder here, actually, we're not called to be popular, we're called to be faithful with the stuff that God asks us to do. If that makes us unpopular, that's okay, because Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. There are things God might be asking you to do that might make you quite unpopular. But this is the point, Jesus comes as saviour. Jesus is the saviour, but he's the saviour on the Father's terms, not on the terms of the people. And that meant that salvation was not as the people expected it to come. Deliverance was not as the people expected it to come. They hadn't signed up for public criticism and their own behavior being corrected. They'd signed up for the overthrowing of Rome. But God came with a bigger plan. Not the overthrowing of Rome, but the overthrowing of sin and death and salvation offered to all. But the thing is this, it can happen in our lives, can't it? It can happen in our lives. We say yes to Jesus, but actually that means submitting to him as Lord. Not just as the one who we think will give us what we want, but as the one who we're willing to submit our whole lives to. He's the Lord. If he's the Lord, we're not the Lord. He has the final say on our taxes, on giving, on whether our life has been fruitful or not, on our worship, on what we're doing. He sees it all and he is Lord. He comes not simply to save our souls for eternity, but to challenge us and correct us and save us from what we've become and to mold us to be the people he calls us to be, to change us from glory to glory. Jesus as the Savior, as the coming Messiah, is not simply about us praying a prayer and getting in. 
It's about our lives being turned around and reoriented to the kingdom of God. It's about a deliverance and a salvation that might be less comfortable. Salvation from what we are right now. Salvation from our wrong attitudes, from our wrong behaviours, from our prideful state, from our stupid rituals that are empty. It comes with challenge, rebuke and correction. And that is why the powerful people wanted to kill him. And that is why people stopped waving their palm trees. Because Jesus came as a saviour like no other. Not as the saviour they wanted, but as the saviour they needed. The one who was coming to save his people from their sins. To be the fulfilment of all that the Old Testament pointed to. Where do you personally need to be open to, to God asking something of you that is not in your plan? Because it can happen, can't it? God, I'll follow you all the days of my life as long as it, you don't affect these parts of my life. God, I'll go wherever you go. Meatloaf did a song, didn't he? God, I will do anything for love. But I won't do that. Where do we need to be open to God calling us to something that is not on our agenda? Where do we need to be open to God and his view over our own view? His leading over and above our expectation. There's a few areas, just dead quickly to finish, where it can affect us, this, I think. It can affect marriages and relationships. We don't deal with loads of marital conflict. Uh, you know, in our life or our church, we don't. But um, so much of, of most of the marital conflict I'm aware of is about wrong expectations. Or about unspoken expectations, unmet expectations that weren't spoken. You know, when someone's going, we, I thought we were going to get married and it was going to be like this. I thought we'd get married and you'd do X, Y, Z. You know, I expect her to do this and she doesn't. I expect him to do this and he doesn't. This isn't what I signed up for. I thought it'd be easy. It can happen in our lives personally. It can happen in our marriages and our relationships. It can happen in our towns, can't it? You know, when we hear that a new supermarket's coming. And, you know, whatever we expected, we didn't sign up for a netto, did we? <laughs> to be fair. Um, <clears throat> but it can happen in our churches as well. It can happen in our churches. And I want to leave this with you in love. And I wrote this before I knew anything of you looking at a new minister or what that might look like. But when you call a new minister, give that minister freedom to be who they are and to do what they need to do and to do the things that God has called them to do. Not what you ask them to be, but what God asks them to be. The minister is here to serve you, yeah, but you are not their master. God is their master. Whoever you call, call them and give them the support and the encouragement and the freedom to minister as God directs them. And don't project all your expectations and preconceptions and all your ideas of how it's going to be great and your dream onto that minister. All the stuff you think they should be or do. Because otherwise, when they seek to be faithful to God's direction, 
you will stop waving your palm trees and you will end up crucifying them. Not literally. But it happens, doesn't it? It happens. We're going to get a new minister. It's going to be amazing. They're going to do this, this and this. And all these areas of church life that we've worked out need working on. They're going to sort it. Put your hope in God. That God will direct you to the right person. And trust God that even if there are moments of discomfort, that minister is still God's person. And that if they're doing things differently to how you expected, and they're doing things that are not quite as much of a priority as you thought they were, trust God. God's still in the call. God knows more than just what you want. He knows what you need as a church to flourish and to be everything he calls you to be. You know, we've been so blessed in Partington by being part of a church that is so open to try new stuff and a new way and see God doing a new thing. It's an absolute wonderful blessing. Please give your next minister the same sort of freedom to be who God calls them to be and to to do what God calls them to do. But bringing it back to our own walk with Jesus, this Palm Sunday, let's pause, let's be still, let's wait and let's make space for God. For Jesus, the Messiah, the Saviour, the Deliverer. Say, God, what do you want to do in me? What do you need to do in me? God, where have I made you in my image? Rather than allowing myself to be made in your image. God, where have I let my preconceptions, my expectations, and my plans, and my dreams shape my view of who you are, God? Let's be still and pray. Lord God, create in us clean hands and a pure heart. Lord, I pray for each of us here that we'd be moldable, we'd be changeable. Lord, that we would once again open our hearts up to your transforming power. Your spirit at work in our hearts and our lives. And your spirit leading us and guiding us in in your direction for our lives. Lord, we say again this morning, less of us, more of you. Lord, we must decrease, you must increase. Lord, forgive us where we've made our faith, just about knowing the blessing of God without fully submitting our hearts and our lives to you. Lord, thank you for your grace that means that we can approach you again And bring who we are before the cross. Lord, would you change us by your Holy Spirit and make us the people that you have called us to be. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening.